are in chapter 21, and we have kind of come through um, the triumphal entry into the city and then Jesus coming back into the temple and uh, overturning the tables of the money changers, if you remember, the racket that the religious uh, leaders under Annas had going on there, ripping people off in the exchange of money, then ripping people off in the exorbitant prices they were charging for sacrifices, um, an incredible amount of money going through. Jesus, of course, steps into the middle of it, begins to overturn the tables of the money changers and drive people out. And uh, as he does that, it says that the blind and the lame came to him, verse 14, which normally were not allowed into the temple precincts. And it says he healed them. And when the chief priests and the scribes saw, isn't that amazing? They saw the wonderful things that he did. And the children crying in the temple, the young boy saying, Hosanna to the son of David, They were sore displeased and said unto him, Hearest thou what these say? And Jesus said unto them, Yea, have ye never read out of the mouths of babes and sucklings thou hast perfected praise? So he applies the eighth psalm to himself. And it says, we've come to verse 17 where it says, And he left them. And he went out of the city unto Bethany, and he lodged there. No doubt the house of Mary, Martha, Lazarus, a familiar place. They were received and cared for there. Um, How remarkable and wonderful. Here's God in human skin who has these families and people that he's friendly with and comfortable with and are comfortable with him, and he comes to their home How remarkable uh, to think of that. It says, now, in the morning, as he returned to the city, to Jerusalem, he hungered. Um, In the morning, the idea is before dawn. It's very early, so we're not sure. Uh, It seems like he'd have been fed, him and the boys there at the house of Mary and Martha. Maybe it was so early that... Uh, They weren't expecting them to leave at that point. But it says it's early in the morning, just dawn is still breaking, still dark. And it says that he was hungry. Uh, You know, I've got that underlined because he walked in our skin. You know, he, he, he left glory and he put on our skin. So he knows what it is to be hungry. He knows what it is to be tired. He knows what it is to be betrayed. He knows what it is to be thirsty. Uh, he knows what it is to be completely exhausted. He knows what it is to feel pain. He knows what it is to be tempted. It says, yet without sin, in every way as we are. Uh, and it's remarkable to read here, he was hungry. Now, we're going to see, I think, as we go into this, it's not just a physical hunger. The physical hunger presents the opportunity for a lesson. I think it's also a spiritual hunger because... He's going to curse this fig tree. Uh, And in the cursing of the fig tree, uh, we're going to see he doesn't curse it because there's no fruit 
he had to know that when he got there. He was Jesus. That there wasn't because you know he said to the guys, "Go on in the city. You'll find a donkey tied there. Get him and bring him." If anybody says, "What do you do?" and you say, "The Lord," you know, kind of he knows everything ahead of time. So he knew there was going to be no fruit. But he curses a fig tree because it says it's filled with leaves, and the idea is it gave the impression that it was fruitful. It, it it had the foliage it gave and he curses it not so much because it didn't have figs but for the hypocrisy of what it was pretending to be which is why he had overturned the tables of the money changers and so forth and, and the reason that he uh, in the 23rd chapter is going to have some very difficult say, things to say the religious leaders so it says he was coming in Return to the city Jerusalem on the way, it says, he was hungry. And when he saw a fig tree in the way, and it's interesting, your translation might say one fig tree. The idea is there's a solitary fig tree there. It's not part of an, an, an orchard or something. There's just this one fig tree that's there. It's on the way in the journey. He came to it, and he found nothing thereon but leaves only. And he said unto it, and evidently it's listening to him because it withers. He's, the tree's listening more than the religious leaders in the temple course. He said unto it, let no fruit grow on thee henceforth and forever and presently the fig tree withered away. Mark tells us it mean, immediately began to wither as they came by the next day. They saw it completely withered and they were amazed. So this picture, look, the fig tree, um, we're going to come to it in Matthew 24. When you see the fig tree put forth its leaves, you know that summer is nigh, and in the simplest interpretation of that is just saying you, you understand seasonally, as you see the fig tree put for leaves, which is usually April, May, the first ripe figs would be there. But when that happens, you know summer is near. It could represent more because Israel is pictured as a fig tree, and I'll, I'll give you these verses. They'll be on the, the tape if you want to turn Judges chapter 9, verse 10. Jeremiah, the chapter 24. Hosea, chapter 9, verse 10. Joel, chapter 1, verses 6 and 7, speak of Israel as God's fig tree. So it seems there's more here than just the natural event. In Matthew, when he says, you know, this generation will not pass till all these things be fulfilled relative to, you know, the fig tree putting forth its branches. Um, yeah, we'll get there when we get to Matthew 24. But the word generation there is genos, race, tribe of people. And it seems like what he's saying there is the Jews. The, for all intent and purposes, they're, they're going to look like they're gone. You know, a couple hundred years of of theological interpretation is all the promises that were made to Israel now go to the church because Israel's gone, you know? And it seems like what Jesus is saying, no, this generation, this genos, this tribe of people, they're not going to pass away. 
till all of these things be fulfilled. So when you see the fig tree putting forth its branches again, then know the time is near. Here in his own day, Israel, you know, Herod's temple, one of the wonders of the world. Uh, you, they, they say that it was so bright when the sun came up, the white marble that was imported uh, and the limestone, but the gold that was around the top that you couldn't look at it. It looked like a snow-capped mountain with gold all over it. Uh, and And it had all of the, you know, presentation of the blessing of God and something that was, you know, he had his hand upon it. Jesus here, it seems as, you know, there's no fruit and he curses it. The fig tree, no doubt the picture of what he's going through at this point in time. And he says, and when his disciples saw it then, they marveled saying, how soon? Is the fig tree withered away? Of course, 70 A.D. would be when Jerusalem would be destroyed. Jesus had already wept over the city. And Jesus answered and he said unto them, Verily I say unto you, If you have faith and doubt not, you shall not only do this which is done to the fig tree, but also if you shall say to this mountain, be thou removed, and be thou cast into the sea, it shall be done. Now, I think we need to figure that out, because I, I know Christians with faith, but they never picked up mountains and thrown them into the ocean. So, you know, I think something else is being put in front of us there. He's certainly challenging his own disciples, if you have faith and doubt not. You know, I, I find sometimes that we can have faith, I can have faith, But for me, maybe in that circumstance to say, I have faith and doubt not. It might be a situation where I have faith and I'm kind of down a little bit. I got faith, you know, putting myself out there. But I got but faith and doubt are perennial enemies. They don't dwell together. And the the kind of faith he's talking about here is trusting in him, trusting in his word. And he's telling us if we have that kind of faith and we don't doubt you know, that God can do great things towards our lives. Actually, this is, you know, it's hyperbolic, obviously, because nobody's going to throw a mountain into the ocean. Uh, probably the Mount of Olives, the Dead Sea, that was the vicinity he was in. Some say it's talking about the promises that were made to Israel, this mountain being cast into the sea, going to the Gentiles. If you torture a text long enough, it'll confess to anything. Um, I think he's just talking about faith here and trusting God. And he said, in all things whatsoever you shall ask in prayer, believing you shall receive it. Now, by the way, again, as we look at that, it says if we pray anything in another place according to his will, we know that we have those petitions that we, we ask of him. Uh, Jesus said, our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So the purpose of prayer is not to get our will done on earth. The purpose of prayer is to get his will done on earth. And Christ is is challenging his own Jewish disciples who had watched him come into the temple. He had watched them crying, you know, blessed is he who cometh in the name of the Lord, saved now and so forth. 
He had, they had watched him overturning the tables of the money changers, watched everything that took place. And, and they no doubt understood how corrupt the religious system had become. And Christ is kind of saying it, it isn't about, you know, all of the trappings. It's not about all of the religious stuff. Do you trust me? I think he would say that to us this evening. Do you, can you believe in me and not doubt? Can you, as an individual, my son or my daughter, can you extend to me because of who I am your trust, your belief, and not doubt? Because if you can do that, great things will happen in your life. And I think, obviously, that's what he's saying to us. He's not telling us to cast mountains into the sea, but he is encouraging us uh, to exercise faith and get to see just what God might do. Now, it says, when he was come into the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people, no doubt the Sanhedrin, the religious leaders, came to him as he was teaching and said... By what authority doest thou these things? Now, it doesn't tell us what he was teaching there. All we know is whatever it was, it's interrupted. And they come and say, By what authority doest thou these things? And who gave thee this authority? What they're talking about is he had come into the temple. He had overturned the tables of the money changers. He had disrupted the, the whole place. And they're saying, all right, you know, What's the deal? You didn't graduate from our seminaries. You you know you don't have an R endorsement. You know where do you get your authority to do these things? And Jesus answered and said to them, you know, like okay, I also will ask you one thing, which if you tell me, I likewise will tell you by what authority I do these things. So, all right, you want to know by what authority? Well, let me ask you a question. And if you answer that, I'll answer yours. He says to them, the baptism of John, John the Baptist, whence was it from heaven or from men? John's ministry, was it divine or was it human? The idea is because the authority they're asking him about is the same authority, the same origin of the authority of John the Baptist ministry. It was divine. And they reason among themselves, saying, well, if we say it was from heaven, then he's going to say to us, well, why didn't you believe him? Why didn't you listen to him? Now, that's hard for them to do. You know, for several reasons. One thing is John the Baptist pointed the finger at Jesus, said, Behold the Lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world. And they say, well, if we say that was God, he's going to say, why don't you listen? But more than that, John the Baptist turned to these men and said, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bring forth fruit worthy of repentance. And Jesus didn't find any that fruit on this fig tree. You know, so, you know, we, well, we can say that, uh, you know, John the Baptist's ministry was from heaven because he called us a brood of vipers and he, he pointed it this Jesus from Nazareth saying that he was the Messiah. So they say, they say, if we say from heaven, then he's going to say, well, why didn't you listen to him? Why didn't you believe him? But if we shall say of men, we fear the people, for all 
hold John as a prophet. They were afraid of the crowd, and the temple precincts were jammed because it was Passover. It was one of the mandatory feasts of the year. And uh, the population of Jerusalem, which was probably around 600,000 normally at this point in time, would swell to about 2 million. So they would make people would be on the housetops. People would sleep, you know, with friends in the area. People, all the rooms would be rented. Um, Jesus said to the Pharisees, you're like whitewashed tombs, because what they would do is they would whitewash all the tombs during the mandatory feast. So because if you touched one, you were disqualified then from worshiping. You had to go through a process of cleansing. You know, the crowds that have gathered are remarkable at this point in time. And no doubt many of them listening to this contest that's going on. And and the religious leaders would say, well, we can't say, you know, John's ministry is, was for men. It was in the flesh. The people will kill us, you know. We can't say that. So they answered Jesus and they said, look at verse 27. We cannot tell. That's not true. They could have said we refuse to tell. That would be true. But we cannot tell is not true. You're kind of like we don't know. That wasn't true. Look, the fig tree (laughs) is there with its testimony, but there's no fruit there's no turning there's no you cannot tell we cannot tell and then he said to them well neither tell i you in other words he knew they weren't telling him neither tell i you by what authority i do these things but what think ye you got it jesus now putting them on the spot a certain man had two sons. And he came to the first, and he said, Son, go work today in my vineyard. And he answered and said, I will not, no way. But afterward, he repented and he went. The idea is to work in the vineyard. And he came to the second son and said, Likewise, And he answered and said, I go, sir, I'll do that. I'll go and I'll work. And yet he went not. Whether of them, of the twain, did the will of the father. Now, it's really interesting because he says the first one, he told him, go on into the vineyard and work. And it says, he said, no, for one reason or another, I'm not going to do that. But then it says he repented which is not our normal word in the New Testament, metanoia, for a change of the mind in repentance. It literally means he began to care afterwards. He said to his father, no, I'm not going to do that. And then he just kind of came under conviction. And afterwards, there was care in his heart. I need to do this. And he went. Now, how many of us, you know, God calls us or he asks us to do something and we say no. You know, I'm just a jerk. I just got saved. I was taking drugs. I don't know nothing. I don't know theological terms. I can't say this. I can't. And then afterwards, we're kind of care. You know, there's a care that comes afterwards, and we start to realize, I need to do this, Lord. You know, I, I, I just don't feel worthy. You know, I just didn't want to do it. It was easier for me to say no. And then we give ourselves to it. 
A lot of us live there on a regular basis, and we do it. And then there are others who say, sure, no problem, I'll do it, and they don't do it. Now, it's a parable. He's talking to the religious leaders, and he says, which of the two did the will of his father? And, of course, they said unto him, well, the first, even though he said no initially. And then Jesus said to them, truly, I say to you, this is not a parable now, that the publicans, who they couldn't stand, and Matthew no doubt wrote this because his ears stood up when he heard publicans because he had been one, the publicans and the harlots go into the kingdom of God before you. For John came, because he asked them, by whom was John's baptism? Where did he get his authority? He says, for John came unto you in the way of righteousness, and you believed him not. But the publicans, the tax gatherers, and the harlots, the prostitutes, they believed him. And ye, when you had seen it, repented not afterwards that you might believe on him. He says, look, I'm, I'm telling you the truth, you know. The, the sinners, the publicans and the harlots are going to go into the kingdom before you guys. Because when John came preaching righteousness, you heard it, but you didn't want to believe. You didn't want to yield. But the publicans and the harlots believe there was actually a place of repentance for them and they went into the water and they were baptized and they began to give their hearts to the kingdom he says they're going to enter in before you religious hypocrites that were standing all around them at that point in time he moves right now to another parable he's going to tell several parables relative to you know their guilt their judgment and the fact that god's work continues he says, hear another parable. There was a certain householder which planted a vineyard. He hedged it round about. He digged a wine press in it. He built a tower and he let it out the husbandmen and went into a far country. So there was another householder. He has this vineyard. This is completely familiar to all of these leaders. Isaiah had said this in the fifth chapter. God says, Now will I sing to my well-beloved a song of my beloved touching his vineyard. My well-beloved had a vineyard in a very fruitful hill, and he fenced it, he hedged it in, and he gathered out the stones thereof, and he planted it with the choicest vine, he built a tower, that's what Jesus said in the midst of it, and also he looked that it should bring forth grapes, and it brought forth wild grapes. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge, I pray you, between me and my vineyard. What could, uh, what could have been done more to my vineyard that I have not done in it? Wherefore, when I looked that it should bring forth grapes, it brought forth wild grapes. And now go to, I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will take away the hedge thereof, 
and it will be eaten up. I will break down the wall thereof, and it shall be trodden down. I will lay it waste, and it will not be pruned or digged. There shall come briars and thorns and so forth. So when he starts to talk to them about this, these religious leaders, they're completely familiar with the idea. That was Isaiah 5. Uh, they're completely familiar with the idea of Israel and Jerusalem being the Lord's vineyard. And he does the same thing with the householder here in verse 33 is the one who owns the vineyard, not the husbandman who rent it out, but the householder. And he says, look at the care that he's he's put into it. Israel, Jerusalem, his vineyard. He's hedged it in. He set, set it aside from all of the nations of the world. And he's put his protection around it. We know that because they're still, they were reborn as a nation of 48. They're still in the news today. But he, he hedged it in. And then he built a wine press there so that it could bring forth fruit and bring joy to mankind. And then he built a tower, which was a watchtower, so you could watch over the vineyard and keep it safe. And you look at all the great care that the householder had for his vineyard. And Isaiah says, what more could I have done for my vineyard? And he says, and then he let it out, he rented it out to husbandmen and went into a far country, certainly a picture of Christ leaving. Um, the husbandmen would rent the field for a nominal fee. They would get to reap the benefits of the harvest, and a portion of it would go back to the householder. Uh, so the, there, was, there was benefit on both sides of this arrangement. And when the time of the fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the husbandmen that they might receive the fruits of it. And the husbandman took his servants, and he beat one and killed another and stoned another. Interesting. He sends his servants to the vineyard. Now, no doubt, John the Baptist, Isaiah, the prophets, and so forth. Jesus is going to say this in Matthew 23. He says, ye serpents, you generation of vipers, how can you escape the damnation of hell? Wherefore, behold, I sent unto you prophets and wise men and scribes, and some of them you shall kill and crucify, some of them you shall scourge in your synagogues and persecute them from city to city. Here's what the Lord is saying. You know, came time for the, the receiving of the fruit born in the vineyard, he sends his servants, and it says, But the husbandmen beat, they beat one, they killed another, they stoned another. Again, look in verse 36. That's a word filled with an awful lot of grace. Again, he sent other servants more than the first. He just didn't smoke the vineyard. He could have just brought down hellfire, but it says again. He sent other servants more than the first, and they did the, to them likewise. Notice this. But last of all, he sent unto them his son, saying, 
They will reverence my son. Now, Isaiah said nothing like this. For these Jewish leaders, for the disciples, for the multitudes that are standing there, this is remarkable for them to hear that the, 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 they would understand the householder was God, Israel was his vineyard, that, that they had killed and stoned and persecuted those that were sent to them. And now they're hearing, and then the Lord said, I will send my son, and they will reverence him. And I understand what's being said here. You know, it tells us in Acts chapter 6, verse 7, that many of the priests and Levites came to the faith and they believed. Understand, as Jesus is talking here, there's a man named Saul of Tarsus, no doubt, in the temple precinct there, as the Sanhedrin said, the priest and the elders are gathered. There's a man named Joseph of Arimathea, who uh, has already not approved of some of the things that are going on and taking heat from his own religious leaders for things. He said, there's a man, Nicodemus, we only hear about him in John, um, but he had already thought some of the way what they were doing to Christ was unjust. And they're standing there listening. Think of those priests that were there when the veil is torn, when Christ dies, that will come to the faith and so forth. And Jesus says here, he says, But last of all, he sent unto them his son, saying, They will reverence my son. And, and I think, is Jesus making eye contact with Saul of Tarsus or with Nicodemus? Maybe with Gamaliel. Gamaliel. Maybe with, uh, you know, Joseph Arathay. We don't know. Just imagine the scene. The people are quiet. There are thousands and thousands of them. I've been on the Temple Mount at Ramadan when there were 60,000 Muslims on the Temple Mount. It was a bit unnerving, but I was there, and there was still room. You have to understand how huge. This is 17 acres, these outer courts, and Jesus is there confronting and talking, and it's filled with, there are millions there, you know, that have come to the mandatory feast, which is the Passover, he says, last of all, he said, I will send my son. They will reverence my son. And when the husbandmen saw the son, they said among themselves, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and let us seize on his inheritance. Now, told us back in the 12th chapter, the Pharisees are already planning how they might destroy him, how they might kill him. This is something that's already cooking behind the scenes. It's, I think Saul of Tarsus may be part of that because, you know, after the resurrection, he's a lunatic. He's the antichrist of the book of Acts. He's slaughtering people and making them blaspheme the name of Jesus at the point of a sword, you know. And of course, God's grace reaches him and he becomes Paul the apostle. But you know, he says, and last of all, they said, let's kill him and let us seize the inheritance for ourselves. And they caught him and they cast him out of the vineyard and they slew him. Isn't that interesting? It's a parable, but Jesus knows what's going to happen. He's telling the parable and he's seeing himself taken by them, crucified outside the camp 
They took him out of the vineyard and they slew him. And when the Lord, therefore, of the vineyard comes, Jesus says to them, what do you think he's going to do to these husbandmen that beat and killed his servants and that killed his son? What what do you think they're going to do? And the multitudes are listening for their answer. Just think that are there. And they, the religious leaders, said unto him, well, he's going to miserably destroy those wicked men and will let out his vineyard unto other husbandmen, which will render him the fruits in their seasons. That is an incredible prophetic answer given by the religious hypocrites of the day. But what else could they say? They got caught in the story. And they tell the truth. He's going to let out his vineyard to other husbandmen. Here we are. Here we are to the church. He's going to let out the vineyard to other husbandmen. And they're going to render to him the fruits in their season. And certainly this is a season we're praying as a church that will be more fruitful than ever. Because we just want the Lord to gather in the last of it and get out of here. you know. And that's what we'd like. So Jesus then says to them in regards to their answer, he said to them, did you never read? Now, Matthew enjoys this, you know, because he, I think he had been a Levite. He loves it when Christ says this to them. Did you never read in the scriptures the stone which the builders rejected, the same as become the head of the corner? This is the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. He's quoting from Psalm 118, where it says there, the stone which the builders refuse has become the head of the corner. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day which the Lord hath made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. Save now. That's what they were singing as he came into Jerusalem. I beseech thee, O Lord. O Lord, I beseech thee, send now prosperity then, of course, if you keep reading, blessed um, be he that cometh in the name of the Lord. We have blessed you out of the house of the Lord. God is the Lord which has shown us light. Again, bind the sacrifice with cords even to the horns of the altar. How remarkable as you read through. Look, that's part of the Hillel Psalms. They had the songs of ascent that were sung as they came up the mountains from the Dead Sea, you know, ascending 3,500 foot, coming up, um, you know, uh, to Jerusalem, Psalm 131, I think, through 38 or something. The songs of ascent that they would sing as they came up. But when they got there, they would sing the Hallel Psalms. And the Hallel Psalms are Psalm 113 to Psalm 118, where this is from. And the crowds had been singing these words. The stone which the builders rejected have become the head of the corner. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. Jesus had tried to make the kids stop singing that psalm the day before this. And now he's saying, what, you never heard of this? Is this a new experience for you? And wasn't this just yesterday? Have you never heard this? You've never read this? It was sung at Passover, at Pentecost, and Tabernacles, the mandatory feasts. Therefore, say I unto you, the kingdom of God 
shall be taken from you and given to a nation bringing forth the fruits thereof. The vineyard is going to be handed, as it were, to someone else. And then he says this, Whoso shall fall on this stone, the stone which the builders rejected, whoso shall fall on this stone shall be broken. But on whosoever it shall fall, it, it will be ground, it will grind him to powder. We have a remarkable verse here because whosoever, it says there, but but whosoever shall fall on this stone, that's singular. So all of a sudden, you know, though there are, there are thousands and thousands there, all of a sudden he's saying whatever individual, man or woman, will fall on this stone will be broken. Isn't that what happened in our lives? Isn't that what happened in our lives? The world left us so empty. We were playing our roles. We were, you know, depending on who we hung out with and who our buds were and who our gang was and who our posse was. And, you know, we we played a certain role, but when we went to bed at night, we knew we were empty. And it, we, we, we had, then we took off our costume and tried to go to sleep. And then at some point, we fell at the feet of Christ. Wasn't church. I grew up. My, you know, my dad was Catholic. My mom was Lutheran. They made me go to church, and they stayed home. Church never did anything for me. Church didn't hang on a cross for me. Church didn't come and introduce itself to me. Church didn't call me. It was Jesus. So whoever falls on this stone, Jesus, the rock of ages, yes, the stone that the builders rejected, but whatever individual will fall on him will be broken. That's part of entering, you know. In this world, when something's broken, you throw it away. In God's kingdom, when something's broken is when he gets started. That's his favorite thing, when he gets his hands on somebody broken. Because he's a redeemer and a reconciler and a restorer. So he says, whoever will fall on this stone shall be broken, but on whomsoever the stone falls will be ground to powder. That's fine grinding. You know, as we go through the scripture, we find clearly that Christ is, for some of us, he is a stumbling stone. He said that. For religious people like those in the precincts here, they stumble at him. Isaiah right after he had sung that song of the vineyard in chapter 8 said, and he shall be for a sanctuary, um, but for a stone of stumbling and for a rock of offense to both the houses of Israel. Remarkable that when he comes, he's going to be a stone of stumbling, a rock of offense. Paul, of course, writes in the first Corinthians, a Pharisee of the Pharisees, he says, we preach Christ crucified unto the Jews, a stumbling block unto the Greeks. Foolishness says the same thing in Ephesians 2.20. So for religious people, 
Christ is a stumbling stone. Look, you have relatives that are religious. You have relatives that are in some religious organization. You have relatives then these days, who knows what they're into, you know, worshiping the environment, you know, uh, whatever, the green goddess or whatever, the jolly green giant, who knows what people are into worshiping these days. Uh, Whatever you give the greatest percentage of your time and your resources to is your God. And for religious people, Jesus is still a stumbling stone. Because we come and say, there's, there's, you know, I, I didn't bring anything. It wasn't that I kept the Sabbath or I kept dietary laws or I kept the feasts. or I had nothing. I was bankrupt. I was bankrupt. The world left me nothing but empty. I faked it. I had my act. But in the final analysis... I was running on fumes. I had nothing. And I fell at his feet. And he loved me. And he made me his own. For religious people, Jesus is a stumbling stone because they want to do something on their own. Same is true today, and you know people like that. For some, Jesus, you and I, is, is a foundation stone. And we again, we hear about that in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 11. I'll read it to you in other places. First Peter mentions this as you go through the New Testament. It says, For other foundation can no man lay than that that is laid, which is Jesus Christ. He's, he's the foundation, the cornerstone. All of your life is built off of him in every direction. Your marriage, your child raising, what you do with your resources and your time, and, and, and what you do when you're sick, what you do when you're healthy, what you do when your life is threatened, what you do when you're healthy. Everything else that happens in life is built off of him. So for those that are religious, he's a stumbling stone. For those who have fallen upon him and taken hold of him, he's a foundation stone in our lives. We have something under us, the everlasting arms. And then we know that that he is, in the scripture, last of all, the smiting stone. He is the stumbling stone, the foundation stone, or the smiting stone. Daniel, in chapter 2 Talking to Nebuchadnezzar, interpreting his dream, said, Thou sawest till a stone was cut out without hands, which smote the image upon his feet that were of iron and clay, and brake them in pieces. Then was the iron and clay and brass and silver and gold broken to pieces together and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floor, and the wind carried them away. That no place was found for them. And the stone that smote the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. Look, you watch the news today. You watch what's going on. Nobody's getting away with anything. Nobody's getting away with anything. Jesus is coming. The smiting stone. You know, he's coming for you and I as a foundation stone. Religious people were praying that their eyes are going to get open. You know, he's a stumbling stone to them. You know, but there's a whole world out there, and I don't know what tares are. I mean, that's a parable. We heard about wheat and tares. 
you know, you look at things and think, hey, man, well, this is so insane. Is the Antichrist behind the scenes already calling a shot somewhere? Or, uh, you know, uh, the gray showed up or something? You know, it seems like the world is completely duped in what it's doing. And you look at the decisions that are being made, and you think, this is... This is spiritual warfare. This is darkness. There are principalities and powers moving behind the scenes, hating Christ, hating what we believe, hating the freedom we have to gather. But there's a smiting stone coming. And he's going to break it all down. And he himself and his kingdom is going to fill the earth. That day is coming. This is this is the last part of the journey. This is the last lap that we're running. And it doesn't mean we're not going to have pain. It doesn't mean we're not going to see persecution. It doesn't mean I know what's I don't know what's going to happen between now and when he comes. But I do believe he could come in any second. I believe the rapture is going to happen. I don't think there's anything prophetically that has to happen before the rapture. I think, you know, there's there's generations in the church that didn't see Israel as a victory because Israel is gone. So in the Reformation, they had to come up with some explanation about all those. You know, I have no doubt that if Martin Luther or Zwingli or Calvin or William Farrell, any of them were alive today, they would look at the news, see Israel and go, duh, of course, we've got to take it all those verses literally, too, because they, they were literalists, you know, and they, and they, and they examined justification by faith through grace, and they brought it back to the church and solo scriptura. If they'd have been alive now and seen Israel reborn as a nation, they'd have been completely different. It's interesting, George Mueller in the 1800s as a young man uh, taught himself to read Greek and Hebrew and so forth, examined all of the scripture about Israel, and he said, you know, I believe, this is like 1825 or something, I used to have the track, Judy found it for you in England, I believe that somehow Israel has to be reborn as a physical, literal people for all of these verses to be fulfilled. Towards the end of his life, before he died, when he had gotten rid of all of his commentaries, gotten rid of everything, he traveled with several lexicons, a Hebrew and a Greek lexicon, and, and his Bible, a Hebrew and Greek translation, and he did it all over again at the end of his life. And he said, I am now more convinced than ever that Israel has to be reborn as a nation. This is in the 1800s. You had Macintosh, you had Joseph Zeiss, you had all of these scholars at that point in time that just looked at, you know, thank God they had the foresight to see it and say, hey, there's a different way to interpret this than than the circumcision, you know, uh, of the heart that the church is in, in you know, inherited all of this. So Christ is coming. It says, when the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, look verse 45, they perceived, I guess they did, that he had spoke of them. Isn't that interesting? Hey, bet he's talking about us. And they sought to lay hands on him, which is telling us more and more of the hostility growing. But they feared the multitude because they took him for a prophet. No chapter break. And Jesus answered and spake unto them again in parables. He's, they are getting whooped. 
this day in front of the crowds, in front of everybody. And you can see Saul of Tarsus, his blood, is he's got boiling bone marrow listening to this. Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus are just probably like kids. We, we saw him. We knew this. We came to him but night by night, asked him how he did the miracle and so forth. So they're listening. And this is a prophetic parable now, interesting. The kingdom of heaven is like, it's like this. It's like a certain king which made a marriage for his son. That's great. Is that great? You guys, the marriage supper of the lamb is coming. We get to be part of this parable. It's like this. He made a marriage for his son, and he sent forth his servants to call them that were bidden to the wedding. And they would not come. Remarkable. John says he came unto his own, but his own received him not. But to as many as received them, to them he's given authority to become the children of God. It says they wouldn't receive him when he came to them. It said back in verse 25, uh, the baptism of John. Where was that from? They wouldn't answer. So they're bidding, they're bidden to the wedding feast. They would not come. Look in verse 4 again. That's grace. God doesn't just blow them off. We're we're told this in one of the other parables. Again, I'll do this. I sent more servants. Then I I sent my son. Now he bids them to the wedding feast. They they say, we're not going to come. It says, again. You know, this is is God Almighty. He's not up there with a lightning bolt in his hand, just waiting to make us dance, just making a human race. They're going to pay for thumbing their nose in my face. There's none of that. That's a human trait. And, and in judgment and in anger and settling the score, we always want to overlay human emotion onto a holy God. And there isn't any of that in him. Yes, he's just. And, and yes, he's going to have this his way. And yes, he's going he's gonna to deal with the wicked. And yes, he has anger and he has wrath. That's why we were created in his image and likeness. But you can't have love without anger. Love is impotent if there's no anger. See someone hurting my wife or my children, my grandchildren. Love has to then, angers the proper moral emotion to stand up and to stop that from happening. And in that sense, I think God has great emotion. And he's telling this parable. I, I, I set the table. I, 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 I sent my service. I sent my son. I, I sent out the invitations. I, I, I invited everybody who wasn't worthy to come. They, they, they could have come. They just had to fall on the stone. And again, it says, he sent forth other servants saying, tell them which are bidden. Tell them this. Behold, I have prepared my table. My oxen and my fatlings are killed. And understand in this culture, it was a big deal to have people over. You you didn't go to Whole Foods. You didn't go to Giant. You didn't run out and grab some stuff. You didn't do a drive-through. When people were coming over, you killed your fatling. You killed your ox. You made a feast. And if nobody showed up, you didn't put everything in the fridge. It went to waste. And he's saying, go out and tell them, I, I, I prepared the dinner. I prepared the dinner. 
I'm amazed as I read that. You know, here's Jesus. He says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. You heard me, you've heard the Father. I and the Father are one. And and it doesn't say God's going to get everybody in line like a drill instructor when we get to heaven and kind of straighten everything out. It says he's made a dinner. Made a dinner. You know, uh, Thanksgiving was tough this year because we had COVID and our whole family was split up. So normally it's a circus. Normally they're all there, you know, 16, however many show up, sometimes friends. And, and the noise is incredible. And, and the grandkids are crying and laughing and beating each other and running around. It's a circus, you know. And, and I look down that table, I see all their faces. I'm so thankful they care for each other. And uh, I'm the wealthiest man on the planet when, when I do that. I don't envy another billionaire. There's nobody I envy on earth when they're there. Because I think in my heart, that experience smacks of, it forecasts a greater table. It speaks of what it's going to be like for you and I to be home at the Father's table. And we're going to be there after being beaten up by the world. Some of us coming through drugs and immorality and abuse. Some of us getting stuck in religious messes trying to have our own righteousness. Some of us maybe before this is over persecuted or martyred. But we're going to sit at the table. We're going to sit at the table. Whatever our scars are, whatever, you know, our reputations are, whatever our resume is, it's going to be washed in the blood. It's all going to be gone. And we're going to sit at the table. This is the kingdom. Jesus says it's like that. The father's inviting and inviting and inviting. And again, he sends his servants out. And he told us in the earlier power, they beat them, they killed them, so forth. Again, he sends them out. And he says, go tell them that are bidden, behold, think about this. This is a present imperative. You have to think about this. I have prepared my dinner. The table is set. My oxen and my fatlings are killed. And all things are ready. Come unto the marriage. This is what the kingdom is like. It's like an invitation to a wedding. Come. You know, come. It's, it's like, you know, the, the, the feast after a wedding. It's, it's like the wedding reception. I mean, a lot of times people don't come to the wedding. They come to the reception afterwards, though. But, you know, he, he says it's like this. It's like, you know what a wedding reception is like. You know what it's like the, to honor the bride and the groom. They're the center of attraction, which is going to be Christ and his church. You know what it's like when all the friends and all the relatives are there and you see people you haven't seen for so long? That's what's going to be like when we get to heaven. I'm going to see my mom, my grandpa again. I'm going to see people I haven't seen for a long time. You, they, you see people at a wedding reception you heard about, but you never met. I'm going to see Spurgeon. I'm going to see Whitfield. I'm going to see some of the people that I've, I've read about, you know, and long to meet. It's, that's, he says, this is what the kingdom's like. It's like this. So, we were talking about this morning in staff. It's not like he's egotistical saying, I'm going to sit in the middle of it on a big fat throne and all your minds are going to be blown and there ain't going to be no more contest about who's in charge. It doesn't say that. It tells us in another place, I'm going to gird myself. 
And I'm going to come. And I'm going to serve you. I'm going to come and I'm going to serve you. Go tell them all things are ready. The, the feast is set. Tell them to come to the marriage feast. You know, and this is a story of neglect, says in Hebrews chapter 2. How, what's going to happen to us if we neglect so great a salvation that was first made known by the apostles and then shared with us by those who had heard them, you know? He says, but they made light of it. They went their way, one to his farm. There's nothing wrong with having a farm. Another to his merchandise. There's nothing wrong with business. But the idea is they chose the material over the eternal. Uh, there's Christians like that today. They, you know, their, their house is their God or their business is their God or their Ferraris their car, their God or whatever, you know, whatever it might be. And, and it seems like the father here is, is brokenhearted. He's saying, you know, in, invite them. Don't, you know, have them come. And I think what an interesting picture. He says, those who have made some other thing the priority, it's the same today. You know, what's it like for you? It says they made light of it. See that? What's it like for you today when you tell somebody, hey, I believe Jesus is coming. Yeah, I see what's going on in politics. I see what's going on with uh, Bitcoin. I see what's going on with uh, with all of these things. Yeah, I see that. Yeah, I see, you know, what's going on with the pandemic. I see, you know, what's going on with Robin Hood. I see all of these things going on, but it don't affect me because I'm going to a wedding reception. You can come. You can come. The price has been paid. You can, and what do they do? It says right here, they make light of it. We live there because they're more interested in what they have or what they may have in their merchandise. But the servants of the Lord, it says, some of them are killed, some of them are persecuted, some of them are mocked. You know, that may be our, it may be our, our lot before He comes. And it says, And the remnant then took his servants and entreated them spitefully and slew them. The book of Acts puts that in front of us. But when the king heard thereof, he was wroth. Isn't this interesting? He sent forth his armies and destroyed those murderers and burned up their city. Isn't it interesting? This is 70 A.D. He sent forth his army. The Roman army was the Lord's. This pandemic is the Lord's. He sent forth his army. This was Titus Vespasian. It was cruelness. You know, in the Old Testament, he talks about Nebuchadnezzar, and he says, Nebuchadnezzar, my servant. Because Israel had neglected, you know, the, the letting the land rest. They owed God for 70 years out of 490. God said, I'm going to collect. And he sends Nebuchadnezzar. And, and throughout history, Daniel tells us, you know, God sets up over a nation or over a land one king, and he takes another down. It isn't happenstance. It's not by the electoral. It's by his election. And sometimes he sets over a kingdom even the basest of men, Daniel says. And here, you know, 
Jesus sent forth in the fullness of time, right? Paul tells us that in Galatians. He could have come forth at any point. Again, he could have come to the best OBGYN, you know, OBGYN unit in the in the land. Instead, he's born in a, in a manger. He's out in the middle of nowhere. And he comes in the fullness of times. No First Amendment rights. No Second Amendment rights. None of that. He comes into a hostile world, and he's, and he's ultimately killed by the Romans. Or the Jews hand him over. And he says, he says he so, the, the king was angry at the injustice and the negligence, and he sends forth his armies, this is now a parable, and they destroy those murderers, and look, and they burned their city, 70 AD, they burned Jerusalem down. Then saith he unto his servants, the wedding is ready, but they which were bidden were not worthy. Go ye therefore into the highways, and as many as you shall find, bid them to the marriage. Aren't you glad that he sent forth his servants to the highways? I sure am. I got an invitation. So those servants went out into the highways, and they gathered together all as many as they found. Look what it says. This is how I got in, both bad and good. Both, you know, good and bad. It was written today, probably say the good, bad, and the ugly which that's another church, but, you know, the, the good and the bad. Look, for 2,000 years he's been sending out invitations, and there's still room at the reception. For 2,000 years he's been bidding the hearts of men and women to come to his son for forgiveness, for newness of life. Not religion, relationship. And the Holy Spirit does that in our lives. For 2,000 years... And there's still room. He said, and and bring them in. (laughs) It says, the bad and the good. And the wedding, it says, was furnished with guests. How wonderful. All of our righteousness, we're told, is like filthy rags. So there ain't any good in the sense that people, the religious people, want to measure it. And when the king came in to see the guests, he saw there a man which had not on a wedding garment. And he said unto him, Friend, how camest thou in hither not having a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then said the king to his servants, Bind him hand and foot, take him away, and cast him into outer darkness. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now look, I know it's a tough ending here. It says the king came in then. The the wedding had been furnished with guests. The tables are full, both the good and the bad. And when he comes in, he sees someone there. Now, we have two different words in verse 11 and 12 for not. Not in verse 11 is, is O-U, oi. And not in verse 12 is may, M-E. Sometimes those words are together in oi-me. It's a double negative. Here, it's saying, you know, the first word not means it, it's just a matter of fact. He came in, and the matter of fact was there was a guy there without a wedding garment. Look, the host provided the wedding garments for free. When you were invited to one of these, the host, you think, Dad's it's expensive now to marry off your daughter. In, in this situation, you bought everybody that came a tux. You know, the, the, the wedding garments were provided by the host freely. 
That's how you and I are getting to the wedding. We're, we're, we're going to be clothed in the righteousness of Christ and white garments. We get in. And he says, he sees there a guy without the outfit. And he says, as a matter of fact, how would you get in here that you don't have an outfit? He said unto him, friend, you know, how came, how did you come here? Now, the second knot is, you know, a matter of thought, not a matter of fact. What were you thinking to come in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless because it's without excuse. It's without excuse because the good and the bad are there with the wedding garments that the host has provided. And we're all that stand on equal ground at the foot of the cross. And he said, take this one then, who's not a believer, bind him hand and foot, take him away and cast him into, King James says outer darkness is really outmost Darkness, which sounds scarier. And there shall be weeping, audible weeping, and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. What an interesting thing to end on. Many are called to the feast. Many is very interesting. In fact, it, it speaks of uh, quantity, but the Semitic root speaks of totality. So you could say all. That's a better translation. Yours might say that. All are called. God turns no one away. All, not just many, all are called. Everybody gets the invitation. It's, it's the good and the bad. All are called. He said, but few, the idea is, are chosen. We get our word elect there. The idea is few accept the invitation. All are called. Look, if, if I get in, anybody can get in, right? You know, the, the door is open. I get in, anybody can get in. The invitation is out there. Wedding feast is coming. Jesus is returning. Doesn't matter what the news says. Doesn't matter what the power brokers say. It doesn't matter what the G8 summit says. It doesn't matter, you know, what the what the social media says. It doesn't matter what the power brokers behind the scenes say. None of that matters. What's going to happen is the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords is coming, and He's going to set up His kingdom, and you and I are going to go to the marriage supper of the Lamb where our Father has provided garments for us, good or bad, that we don't deserve, and we will be clothed in white at the marriage supper of the Lamb, and we will be the bride. This is a parable. In truth, we're the bride. And they sing, Here Comes the Groom at the Wedding. And here comes the bride, you know. So what a remarkable scene. Many are called, all are called. God is indiscriminate in his love and his grace. The door is open. The offer of salvation is there. All are called. Few accept the invitation. Few accept it. So for you and I, great time again just to get the word out there. Get tracks out there. Get... You know, copies of the New Testament out there. Our church, you guys have helped uh, in Israel right now. They're, they've, they're printing Hebrew New Testaments because there's been such a hunger amongst the Jewish people 
for a Hebrew New Testament, the kids are under their covers at night with their iPhone lighting up reading because their parents will freak out if they know they're doing it. But um, twice now you gave money to spread Hebrew New Testaments all across Israel. Because after the rapture, people are going to be scrambling to get their hands on those things. The 144,000 are going to say, go grab one of those Hebrew New Testaments laying around. We'll tell you what's going on. You know, So there's great opportunities for us all now to be in ministry, to share in the simplest way with an individual. And who knows what God might do with that. The door's open. The invitations are out. And, uh, and you and I have the privilege of saying, hey, he let me in, gave me a garment that I could never produce on myself. I'm going to the feast. I am going to the feast. Let's stand. Let's pray together. Read ahead. Some great stuff now. He's in the temple courts. He's really gonna. He's really gonna let him have it. Really, it's really great. It's my carnal nature. He's trying to win them over, and I'm, I'm enjoying watching them get smoked. Father, we thank you for these things. We look to you, Lord, and uh, this study through Matthew, Lord, these images, Lord, just imagining what it was like in the temple precincts, the conversations, the, the things that we have from Matthew, Mark, and Luke about these days and, and John. Uh, Father, the impressions that were made, Matthew sitting with a quill guided by your spirit, Writing these things down, Lord. We pray, Lord, for your word to go forth in this world, Lord. We pray for this invitation to become apparent, more apparent than it's ever been. We pray as the population of the world is greater than it's ever been, as the sin of mankind is greater than it's ever been, Lord, that the need for forgiveness and for love and, Lord, to banish loneliness and depression and suicidal thoughts that, Lord, the gospel of Jesus Christ would shine forth brighter than it ever has. And, Father, whatever role we can play in that process, here we are, Lord. We are uh, the good and the bad, Lord. You know us. We're, we're not here because we're experts. We're not here because we have particular uh, gifting to communicate or do anything, Lord. We are here because you saved us. You called us. You filled us with your spirit. You brought us to our Savior, to his feet, to the cross. And you've taken our hearts, Father. You've taken our hearts. And we're looking forward to your table, Lord, to your home. To that dinner that you prepared. And Lord, we thank you for these things, Lord. Let them overflow from our hearts to a lost world. Lord, we pray in your name. Amen.